Hi, this is Shotgun Tom Kelly, and now that I have your attention, you wanted to be close to him in the dugout during his impressive 15-year Major League career because he was always watching, listening, and looking for an edge. Now, Kurt Bavakwa brings that edge to Dirty Kurt's dugout, where you can listen, watch, and be a part of the most honest, informative baseball show available today. Now, here's Kurt. Well, here we are. Welcome to the show. As you can see, we are our comfy little dudes that we got set up here. And it's the reboot of Dirty Kurt's Dugout. I want to welcome everybody to the show, I want to especially welcome our title sponsor, the Hacienda Casablanca over in El Cajon. If you don't know where it is, it's 700 North Johnson in El Cajon. And I'm going to talk to Joe today, producer Joe. You'll meet him sometime during the show uh, about setting up a watch party over there, too, for next Friday or Saturday night when the Padres are playing up at Dodger Stadium in L.A. So I won't be able to sit on my couch or, or in my chair and watch the game. So I'll come out and watch it with you all. I think that'll be fun. So the watch party, either next Friday or Saturday night at the Hacienda Casablanca. And uh, I want to especially thank Cindy and Tony out there, uh, producer Joe, as I mentioned, and then my other technical guy who, um, well, if it wasn't for both of these guys, we wouldn't be on the air. But Alan, uh, I'd like to thank him a lot at uh here's the name of his podcast if you guys ever want to do a podcast call pretty easy podcast or go online and look for it alan's the head honcho over there and he'll set you up it's good well i promised you on the first show we were going to talk about the state of the san diego padres and we are going to do that hence the shirt and all of the stuff that you see in the background I'll get to it in a minute, but we got a special guest, and uh, it, 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 he's even special to me, and, and we'll get into those stories as we talk to the guy that earlier this season uh, broke an existing record at the major league level for umpiring in-season games that stood for 80 years. He's one of the only umpires that you know his name. I promise you, you can't name me three umpires. But Joe West is going to be one of them. And the other, one of the other ones will probably be Angel Hernandez. <laughs> Why those two guys are linked together, I'll never know. Trust me. But Joe West is with us today. Joe, I appreciate you uh, joining the show for the reboot of Dirty Kirk's Dugout. And welcome. Well, it's good to be here. It's always good to see you. I mean, last time I saw you with the chicken. And the last time yeah. I saw the chicken, he was with you on the field. And <laughs> where was it, Chicago? That Chicago. you broke Bill Clem's record? Yeah. Yeah, he was on He was on the field. He, my brother got his ticket, and he went up. He said, I got my ticket, Joe, and I went up, and I was sitting next to a chicken. He had no idea who the chicken was. <laughs> but... <laughs> 5,376 regular season games. That's, that's, that's a crazy amount of games. 
And if you divide that by 162, it really doesn't tell or give you the entire picture because uh, the first year Joe started umpiring, you were just a National League umpire. There wasn't any of this cross-league stuff that's going on nowadays. No, the only time they played interleague was in spring training in the World Series. And then um, uh, the the other thing is uh, I've been through like three labor wars with baseball, and uh, I think the most games I ever worked in one season was 158. And uh, when we had this labor dispute in 79, we missed all the way up to like May 18th. And so now they've, um, because of them hiring people that were not on staff, they had to give us time off. And I tell people all the time, I said, you know, we've never negotiated for time off. I said, they gave us two weeks off when they hired the scabs in 79. And then when the players had a strike in the early eighties, uh, they tried to consolidate the season and they gave us two more weeks. So I figure if we'd negotiate, we'd get half the year off, but <laughs> we've never, we've never negotiated for time off. So the most games I work now, because you have to go sit and replay is between 120 and 130 games. But uh, like I said, the most games I ever worked was my first year. So it's uh, it's been a long road. It took me, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought replay up because we'll get to replay in a minute. I have, uh, I have something I want to propose to you. <laughs> we're going to make believe that we're heading up baseball. Speaking of heading up baseball, I mean, you headed up the Umpires Association for how many nine, years? 18 or years. so? Yeah, they voted me in in uh, 2009, and I negotiated three contracts. So – um, and it, and it was interesting because, uh, the, the inner workings in the office had all, they, they had tried to do everything they could to separate us, you know, the divide and conquer theory. And, uh, at one time, Rob Manfred said, uh, said, you, you know, you're trying to move this back to 99 where he fired half of us or fired a third of us. And, uh. Our attorney told him, said, no, you don't understand. Joe West is one for all and all for one. You're not separating them anymore. And uh, and that that made me very successful in what I was trying to do for the umpires. I mean, we there's still a ways to go to, to get it, you know, perfect. But I guess in all aspects of this game, nothing's perfect. You know that. Even when a guy throws a perfect game, he has to throw a ball or two, and somebody has to make a great play behind him. So it's never going to be perfect. But that doesn't mean you can't strive to be perfect, you know? And and speaking of that, let's just go right into my, my little deal. Because I remember talking to you a couple of years ago about replay. And much to my surprise, you had no problem with it. I thought the umpires would be against replay. And for obvious reasons. And But you said, you know what? Kurt, we want to get it right. And and you've proven that. It's been proven that uh, – and, and the other thing that's been proven is that the umpires are right most of the time. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you got bang-bang plays. I mean, we were, I was always amazed as a player on a bang-bang play at first base. You swore that he was either safe or out. The umpire made the opposite call, and you found out that he was, in fact – uh, sided with the umpire, whatever call that was. And you could have sworn that you saw something different. So 
you know, so the umpires aren't given the, the, the bad thumb all the time as they do in New York with Javi Baez and Lindor. Um, you got umpires <laughs> deserve a heck of a lot of credit. But I want to ask you this. Here's a rule I want to change. And I want to see what you think of it right off the bat. Because Manfred's talking about doing away with seventh inning and the runner on second after this season, which was COVID rules. And I want to see what you think of this. A team challenging a ball and strike call. At certain times during the game, if in fact the game's on the line. Do you think that's something that could ever happen or will ever happen? Well, the biggest problem with challenging balls and strikes is the way they judge the balls and strikes with a linear system. In fact, that little box you see on TV, that's a linear system. It's one-dimensional. And you know as well as I do that the strike zone is three-dimensional. And we had an umpire one day. He came to me and he says, Joe, I thought I had a good game yesterday, and the machine said I missed six pitches. And I said, uh, yeah, well, I worked at second base, and I, I couldn't see a pitch that I would even question what you called. And uh, so I said, how many did the machine miss? And he said, oh, it didn't track 14. So let, let me get this straight. The machine missed twice as many pitches as you did, and, and they're going in that direction to try to call balls and strikes. See, the, the, the problem is the human element of this game, I can guarantee you that most of the umpires are getting more pitches correct than the machine is, meaning the machine's not tracking all of them. And that's the biggest problem with it now, that it can't track them all. There are little things that can happen. Uh, somebody bumps the camera, somebody this, that, and the other. But they've, uh, they've always determined that the biggest problem with the automatic strike zone is that the technology is not there to do it because they biangulate the pitches, number one. And any sniper will tell you when I'm going to shoot somebody, I want to triangulate it so I'm exact in what I'm trying to do. So th there's there's some kinks to be worked out. Is it possible it's going to happen in the future? I think maybe yes. But then again, the way they're doing it in the minor leagues and trying to call the pitches with the machine, they're putting the umpire behind the plate. And if the machine doesn't call the pitch, they, they want the umpire to call it. Well, you think there's pressure on an umpire now on a 3-2 pitch. You have a 3-2 pitch and the machine doesn't call it. Now what kind of pressure is he under? You know, so this is uh, – <laughs> It's going to be a work in progress, but uh, think about it. You know, you don't have to call a pitch for seven innings, and now the whole game's on the line, and now the machine doesn't work. So, I mean, and we don't have do-overs in baseball. You just we don't have those. So, the biggest the biggest problem with it is this is a typically American sport. You're supposed to hit a, a round baseball with a cylindrical bat and hit it square, and then hit it where nobody can catch it. And if you'll notice how American made it is, it's always somebody else's fault when you lose. And usually they try to blame the umpire. <laughs> so if you, if you look at everything about this, I mean, let's take responsibility for everything you do. I mean, the first thing that happened when we went to replay was the players finally realized that the umpires weren't trying to stick it to them. 
they finally realized that the umpire is just trying to get it right. That's what he's trying to do. And that was a big thing in, in the, the camaraderie, I say, between the players and the umpires was now the player didn't believe that the umpire was trying to do something illegal or immoral. And, uh, and, and that was a big win for the, for the umpires because now they just, oh, they put their hands up over their ears, let's go to the headset. But back then, if somebody called you out and you didn't think you were out, there was, I mean, there was, that's why they had the arguments. That's why you had the Billy Martins and the Earl Weavers and those guys. They went absolutely nuts. And, uh, and you know, and it's really funny. When we per- first put in the replay, you'd think ejections would go down. They didn't. They went up. But most of them were the managers arguing with the replay. <laughs> They, were, they weren't arguing the call. They were arguing with the replay. <laughs> so, and that was an automatic ejection if they said anything about the replay. I, and I was, I was just going to ask you, the only time managers really get thrown out of the game now is they're arguing balls or strikes. Yeah, but they did that anyway. I mean, I, I watched a game the other day, and we had a young kid behind the plate. In fact, I think he's going to be in San Diego this weekend for at least one game. And they showed they showed the replays of the pitches that the the team was arguing about it, and it looked it appeared that he got every one of them right. And he had to kick out the manager, he had to kick out one of the players. <laughs> so sometimes it's just the mood that players are in, and and you know there's sometimes when the umpires do miss pitches, but uh, for the most part, like you said, they're pretty accurate. Our average is above ninety five percent with the machine grading you, and. There's no other sport where the officials have that kind of average for something as difficult as calling balls and strikes. Well, you've spent time in the replay office in New York City. Is there a way to speed that process up? Well, they could probably give us uh, earpieces and stuff like that. But uh, I, I, I think that the fact that it takes as long as it does helps both the manager who's challenging it because, like I said, we want to get everything right and the umpires that are going to have to judge what happened because sometimes they have to look at the replay from five and six different angles. And uh, and, and you'd be surprised how many times you look at the first three and he looks out and then you look at the last one and the guy never touched him. And so sometimes you need all those angles and you need that time. But replay's trying to get everything back in less than two minutes. That's their that's their goal, and um, so I, I think the people in replay have done an admirable job trying to do what they're, they're trying to get accomplished. But you're right; we could probably do it a little quicker if the crew chief had an earpiece and he didn't have to run to the dugout and run back and whatever. Major League umpire Joe West is our guest. Hi, everybody. I'm Kurt Pavakwa, and welcome back to Dirty Kurt's Dugout. Uh, you know, I got to ask you about postseason umpires because I know you were the head of the Umpires Association for quite a few years and you negotiated contracts. Was it ever brought up that umpires via a ranking system should be the guys that umpire postseason games and not have it just be a circular thing where everybody gets a chance. 
Well, you you don't understand what the contract reads now because when I first came up, it was on a rotation basis, and no one could work the World Series or the All-Star Game or any of the playoffs until everyone had worked it once. In other words, you couldn't work it twice before everybody on staff had worked it once. Well, when we gave that to management, they started picking their top umpires every year. So when they got to 19, was it 75, where the Cincinnati Reds played the Red Sox? Yeah, that was 75. They were, yeah, they were out of umpires with any seniority. All six umpires that worked that World Series, none of them were ever crew chiefs. And none of them had ever worked a World Series. All six. And that was one of the most exciting World Series in in modern day history. Yet no umpire on the field was a crew chief or had been a crew chief. Now, since then, it's supposed to be on skill and merit. And only one other time, only one other time has there ever been a crew that didn't have a crew chief on it. And that was when Toronto won their first World Series in 92. And uh, so it's only happened twice that we know of. And uh, so I I think baseball is, is making an effort to try to put who they consider the best umpires on the field. And, and who's you know, making that you know, decision? As well as I do. The umpire department now now is being headed by Mike Hill. Before it was headed by Joe Torrey. Right. And Mike Hill just took over this last year. So, but uh, yeah, they they try to put the, the only the only thing, and I argued with Joe Torrey about this for many many years. I said, why don't you put the umpires that live in the All Star Game City in that event? because it's a hometown event for them and nobody really cares who wins. You know, although everybody likes to win, but my point being that uh, one year we had the World Series in, or the, not the World Series, but the All-Star game, we had it in Milwaukee. Well, Bruce Fremming lived in Milwaukee and he didn't get to work it. Two years later, we had it in San Francisco and Eddie Montague, who lives in San Francisco, didn't get to work it. A few years later, we had it in Phoenix we have 11 umpires that live in the Phoenix area and not one of them was assigned the all-star game. So I called up Joe and I said, what are you doing? And he says, what do you mean? I said, we got 11 guys that live in Phoenix. And I told him the same story about Fremig and, and Montague. And he says, I never thought of that. And, and of course, management wouldn't think of that. I said, nobody cares who wins. So why don't you put the umpires that are local or close by so that they can take their families and their friends to an event that they're working. And every year after that, he would call me who lives close by. <laughs> so he listened. And I mean, and, and you know what as rough and tough as Joe was as a manager, he made every effort to try to work with the umpires when he was here as our boss. You got bumped by Joe Torrey one year. If I remember right. Well, that was over another <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I pushed him back, and he got fined, and I got suspended. <laughs> oh, you guys actually pushed one another. I didn't remember that yeah. part of it. So with you working home plate, who's the best pitcher? 
you've ever seen? Probably Seaver. You know, he was like Greg Maddox at about 10 more miles an hour. <laughs> and um, that kind of pinpoint Somebody asked me that one day. To, yeah, and he, and he threw hard. You know, I don't know if anybody was more intimidating than J.R. Richard and probably Randy Johnson. They were both intimidating, but neither one of them were the pitcher that Seaver was. Um, somebody asked me, Larry Haney used to play with Oakland. He asked me one time, he said, who's the best pitcher you ever saw? And I said, Seaver. He said, who had the best fastball? I said, J.R. And he said, who had the best curveball? I said, Bly Levin. He said, uh, who had the best slider? I said, Carlton. He said, who had the best change of? I said, Martinez. He said, let me tell you, the best fastball I ever saw was Sam McDowell. Best curveball I ever saw was Sam McDowell. The best changeup I ever saw was Sam McDowell. Every pitch was Sam McDowell, sudden Sam McDowell. And he said, but he was far from the best pitcher, but he had the best stuff of anybody I ever saw. You know, so some of this is subjective and, and uh, I mean, who, who would say that you wouldn't pick Greg Maddox to be one of your starting pitches? Who would say that John Smoltz is another one? Um, and uh, when, you, when you started playing, Houston had a pitcher named Larry Durker. And when we were coming up, he'd, he'd have 20 complete games a year. We have whole divisions that don't have 20 complete games. You know, I'm, I'd be surprised that there's 20 complete games in this whole Western division out here. But these guys finished their games back then. Yeah, they don't finish games anymore, do they? Yeah, Red Shandings managed the Cardinals. And Mike Shannon told me, he said, Shandings never took Bob Gibson out in the middle of an inning. He said he'd take him out for a pinch hitter, but he would never take him out in the middle of an inning. And that says, says a lot if you think about it, you know. Well, he finished we had, an inning with a broken leg <laughs> you, you you forget that well you saw Randy Jones if he threw 100 pitches we were in extra innings you know, these guys today they're throwing 100 pitches in 5 innings and that's why they don't complete the games yeah you guys are earning your but, money uh, now you you had uh, <laughs> you had um, quite a difference between what how umpires used to live from the time you started until now you we were talking about that a little bit earlier when you you started talking about changes that have been made but uh tell the folks that when you left to go and umpire for the season at spring training you never came home unless you lived in a major league city unless you had the time or unless you got that time off that we got later on. Yeah. You, I remember my, my first season in the big leagues, I left for spring training March, like 15th and, uh, and came home after working winter ball <laughs> with you. <laughs> in 1977, I, I left home March 15th. I worked spring training with the national league and I worked, all year, and then went to winter ball and came home February 2nd the next year. You were in Puerto Rico. San Juan. San Juan's a pretty nice place to go in the wintertime, isn't it? Well, yeah, San Juan was beautiful. I enjoyed that. 
We used to go to that little place called the Diamond Horseshoe. <laughs> in fact, you you were still there when the, you were still there in the playoffs when the, when they they threatened me and they said you'll never get off this island alive. <laughs> yeah, I got threatened in uh, Maracaibo, Venezuela, one weekend when I uh, had a collision with Louis Aparicio at third base, and he ended up in the hospital that night. Uh, Naturally, I didn't do it purposely. Louis was a great guy, but yeah, that was a that was a scary time. They had to put guards with me, but that was Venezuela. Venezuela is a little different to Puerto Rico, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Hey, producer Joe's got a question for you, Joe. Hey, Joe, how you doing? I'm great, Joe. You? Good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Hey, I have a question. What is your most memorable moment? A game of significance? a groundbreaking uh, moment in history or any particular moment that may have happened throughout your, your long tenured career? Well, breaking Clem's record was really big because I, I had a lot of friends and family there and, uh, and then the outpouring that I got from it, I got a letter from George Bush. I actually got a letter from Jackie Autry, Gene Autry's widow and um, people sent cards kevin costner sent me a, a video hmm. garth brooks sent me a video uh, the oak ridge boys asked the white Sox if they could sing the national anthem for it and uh, but probably and and i would have to say that's the biggest moment i've ever had because the outpouring of affection was so great and and umpires don't get any any love really <laughs> they really don't but we had no. we had a play years ago with uh, between the Yankees and the Red Sox. And you'll remember this play because Alex Rodriguez hit a, a bleeder down the first baseline and Arroyo picked it up and went to tag him. And he slapped the ball out of his glove, which you can't do with his left hand. And uh, with all the commotion that was happening at the first base, Randy Marsh didn't see what happened. So when Francona came out to argue, I told him, wait right there and we got everybody together and I said, Randy, he interfered with the play by using his hand to knock the ball out of his glove. And Rand, of course, Randy didn't see it because he was behind the first baseman. And uh, so Jeff Kellogg was the right field umpire. He said, yeah, that's that's what happened, Randy. And uh, so I said, we're going to have to call him out. So uh, Randy turned around to start to call him out. And Joe Torrey was managing that club, the Yankees at the time. And Randy turned around and started calling. I said, Randy, do you want to call it? Do you do you want me to call it? He says, no, no, it's my call. I'll call. When he called him out, they threw everything in the world at us. <laughs> Somebody threw their, their BMW car keys at, at John Hirschbeck, who was umpire in third base. I mean, it's, it was we had to go get the riot squad and take him out on the field to stop it. And, uh, and they arrested 16 people as soon as we got the riot squad out there. And they arrested a bunch of people. But it was ugly. I mean, it was a sad state of affairs. Right. But the next day, because the media said that we were exactly right, when we went on the field, we got a standing ovation in the town that the call went against. The Yankee fans actually gave us a, an ovation when we came back on the field. Now, that is very humbling. You know, I mean, but uh, it, it was, in New it York. was quite, quite an event. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think anything compares to 
the the deal in Chicago because uh, uh, even Reinsdorf told me the owner of White Sox told me there she's said I like I like it when you come to Downton. I I wasn't counting on 127 tickets. <laughs> this is the most expensive game I ever worked. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite city to work? See now, people ask Jack Nicholas what his favorite golf course is, and he says that's like asking me who my favorite kid is. So you can't you can't answer that. Why why would I pick one city over another and have everybody else mad at me? I, they're mad at me enough. <laughs> oh, you're beloved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe, thanks. Good luck with the game tonight. Uh, keep up the great work and. Uh, Good luck with you. I'm glad your knees are doing good. Well, thank you. Keep oh, it up. We'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, I know I promised you the state of the Padres, and we're certainly going to do that, along with the upcoming schedule and also the schedule for the remainder of the year with them. Uh, but first, I want to point out something that uh, is over my shoulder right here in the back of the room. Those two seats that you see, the ones that are bluish in tint, came from SDCCU Stadium. I'll call it by the right name. Uh, Because former, the former Qualcomm and former Jack Murphy Stadium. And the reason I bring up those names is because those are the same seats that were there in 1984. They were a different color, but they're the same seats because they were never replaced. And I secured the two seats that my home run landed in, in game two of the 1984 World Series. And to date, unfortunately, it's the only game that the Padres have won in the World Series. So those two seats are rather historic, to be honest with you, because as of right now, the two people that were in those seats actually secured the ball. And Goose Gossage got the ball for me. So I have that in another display, but it's not, it's not just sitting out. So I wanted to get that, that through to you. Uh, it, this is Dirty Kurt's Dugout, the reboot. Uh, I'm Kurt Bavacqua, and we're brought to you by Hacienda Casablanca. 700 North Johnson in El Cajon, California, where producer Joe and I are going to be next Friday or Saturday night. Uh, I'm leaning towards Friday, but we'll let you know that. I'll let you know on a Facebook Live. I won't wait until next Thursday when we drop the show again uh, to, to wait that long to let you know so you can make some plans. I want you all to come out and join us. Uh, we're going to have a great time. Let's see how crowded we can make Hacienda Casablanca in El Cajon. So write write that down. If you don't know where it is, write it down. You can Google it. It's easy to get to. Hacienda Casablanca, 700 North Johnson in El Cajon. But let's talk about the Padres. Well, our San Diego Padres were the talk of baseball back at the beginning of the season in April and May. And you know what? Since that time, it hasn't been too good. You know, granted, there have been some injuries, but the last 18 games for this ball club, they're 5-13. and 
there has been some, let me call it peculiar moves that have been made. And I'm not trying to be Mr. Know-it-all here, but these moves were strange. And the moves that I'm talking about were the moves before the trading deadline and right on the trading deadline to get Adam Frazier and Jake Marisnik. I have nothing against these two fine players. But I can't understand why they were brought in. And I don't see story after story written about it. I really don't. I mean, how can you bring in a guy that's one of the top hitters in the league, hitting 324 in Adam Frazier? And since he's gotten in San Diego, he's a 220 hitter. How does that happen? I'll tell you in a minute. Jake Marisnik, why acquire an additional outfielder when you've got four or five guys on your roster that are very capable outfielders? You know, they might be a tinge. A couple of them might be a tinge below Marisnik as far as defense is concerned. But all of them are better offensive players. So I didn't understand these moves. But let me tell you what I've come up with. Ready for this? I believe Adam Fraser and Jake Marisnik, mostly Adam Fraser, was acquired because there was another deal in the works. Because it does not make any sense to acquire a guy, even as good a player as he is, from the Pittsburgh Pirates. When you've got an all-star second baseman, you're going to acquire another second baseman and take him out of his position and put him somewhere else or move your all-star second baseman and put him in another position. Now, good that, I shouldn't say good, it's not really good, but the fact that Uh, Jake Cronenworth was around, it's good. And he was able to fill in for uh, Fernando Tatis when he went on the AIL. It was a great move. We were able to put uh, Adam Fraser into the lineup. Uh, It gave Kim less playing time. Uh, It gave Profar less playing time. It gave everybody less playing time. Then you put Riznek in the mix. And now you've got the outfielders. You've got Myers. You've got Pham. You've got Grisham that are all getting less playing time. Well, guess what, folks? That doesn't do a lot for the morale in the clubhouse. So not only did Jace Tingler acquire Adam Frazier and Jake Marisnik, but now he's got to figure out a place to put him. Does Jace Tingler actually do that? Or are those lineups sent from upstairs to put on the field? Because I can't even tell you how many different lineups this ball club has had this year. 
And that, I believe, is one of the reasons that Adam Frazier hasn't been productive here in San Diego. Because for one, he's not used to hitting eighth. And hitting eighth in the lineup might be one of the hardest places to hit in the lineup. You got the pitcher hitting behind you. And even though you got some pinch hitters that you might have to worry about in the second or third time around the lineup, you can be pitched around. You can be thrown 2-0 breaking balls, 2-0 off-speed pitches, 3-1, 3-2 breaking balls. Adam Frazier, I believe, is used to seeing fastballs, or he was in Pittsburgh, and it's very similar to what happens here the few times that he's gotten a hit in the top of the lineup. But he hasn't been there very often. I feel sorry for Adam Frazier. I think he was put in a situation that's not good for him. I don't think it's good for the San Diego Ball Club. And it's certainly not good for Jake Cronenworth and Ho-Sung Kim because, well, especially Kim, he gets much less chance to play baseball. What this ball club needs to do the remainder of the season is they need to go in there with a consistent lineup. And I'm going to tell you something right now. It's not Fernando Tatis Jr. hitting fourth. Fernando Tatis Jr. has to lead off or hit second. Him and Grisham need to flip-flop those spots. I would rather see Tatis leading off than anything because I think it puts automatic pressure on the pitchers and on the defense and on the opposition because you have to pitch to them. What's the worst thing that you want to do to lead off a game? Is walk the leadoff hitter. We all know about that. We all know about that. And that's why Fernando is successful. Well, he's successful almost anywhere he hits in the lineup. But when you don't have guys hitting behind you, you're going to be less successful in a major league lineup. Even when the guys are good hitters, but they're going bad, the opposition knows that. You can get pitched around in a major league lineup. And the other thing, leave Will Myers alone. Please. Put him out in the outfield and let this guy play. He's going to knock 30, uh, 25 home runs. He's going to drive in 80 runs or so, and he's going to hit you a solid 260 to 275. What, what's wrong with that? Why do you want to keep messing with things? You're going to give your extra men chances to play, but it's time to put your bulls out there and let them win baseball games for you because this upcoming series is not going to be easy. This ball club is home for three games against the California Angels, Los Angeles Angels. I take that back, Houston Astros. And then they've got a series with the Angels, just a short two-game series with the Angels. And then they go on what I believe is going to be their season. They're going on a road trip uh, that spans 10 games in three different cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and St. Louis. And I think when they come back off of that road trip, if they're in a position for the wild card, 
they have they're going to have done one heck of a job. And I don't care what the combination is. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether the ball club wins. I mean, it does. But as long as the other teams behind them lose the same night they lose, I mean, didn't that go on so many different times early on in the season? I mean, how many times did you win three or four games or did the San Diego Padres win three or four games here? And they look at the scoreboard and the L.A. Dodgers did it and so did the San Francisco Giants. I mean, San Francisco, they've been playing some great baseball. And you know what? The Dodgers finally caught them. They caught them and took over first place last night for the first time since April. That's pretty amazing because the San Francisco Giants have played and will probably continue to play good baseball for the remainder of the season. And the Padres have got a schedule that is brutal in my mind. I mean, can you imagine going to L.A. for three games, then continuing on to San Francisco for four, and then having to travel to St. Louis after that last game in San Francisco and playing the next day to start a three-game series and then coming back home? They're playing 10 games with no days off. If this ball club can get through that stretch, especially the starting pitching, which incidentally, with the exception of you, Darvish, I've seen some good things happening. I mean, I really have. Hallelujah. Chris Paddock pitched one heck of a game the other night. Blake Snell has been lights out. He's my number one going into postseason. I know uh, Joe Musgrove has thrown a no-hitter, and he threw a shutout the other day, and he's throwing good. But Blake Snell is my go-to guy, especially if you face the Los Angeles Dodgers in a wild-card game. I don't know who that other wild-card team is going to be. I really don't. I don't know whether it's going to be the San Diego Padres, the St. Louis Cardinals. You can't count out the uh, – the Philadelphia Phillies, and the Atlanta Braves are there. You don't know who's going to win the East. So there's crazy stuff going on in baseball. It's a matter of who's going to win home field advantage and win the division in the National League West and not have to play the wild card game. Who would you rather play in a wild card game, the Dodgers or the San Francisco Giants? Who would you rather play in a five-game series? The Dodgers or the San Francisco Giants? I have a pretty good idea what everybody's saying out there. I really do. But I'm not sure if I agree with you. Because I know everybody is saying, I would rather play the San Francisco Giants in a five-game series and try to get by the Los Angeles Dodgers, throw Blake Snell out there, let them throw their Walker Bueller or Max Scherzer or Julio Urias, whoever they're going to pitch that has got 15 wins. Uh, they've got a good pitching staff. But, boy, when you get into their bullpen, you can create some havoc. They've got a couple of guys that have done okay down there lately. I mean, Kenley Jansen's looking okay again. 
But you know what? It's not the same confidence level that you used to see from the Los Angeles Dodgers when Kenley Jansen comes into the game. It's just not. It's changed. And I don't know whether they they still believe in him because they're they're still throwing him out there. But it's just different. But you know what? The first thing the Padres have to do is get in that wild card game because there's no chance for the division. So they've got to go through the wild card process. Would it be nice if they could get home field advantage? Yeah. It's not going to happen. So they're going to have to go to either L.A. or San Francisco if they're the team. Remember, these other uh, teams are biting at their fanny. They're right behind them. You got the Reds. You got St. Louis. You got the Phillies. And you also have the Atlanta Braves because the Phillies could overtake the Atlanta. And, And I'll tell you, there's another team not to count out. And that other team I watched play this weekend because the Padres had a crazy day off on Sunday. And it was the New York Mets with all the crap that's going on. And everything that happened with Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor with their signs that they were doing when they got on base and when they were rounding the bases, hitting home runs. And then Javi Baez ignorantly does a postgame show and he tells anybody that's listening, that's our way of booing the fans. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a good thing to say, Javi. And he found that out. He found that out the next game. And what, what does he do? He does what Javi Baez can do. He scored from first base on a line drive single to left field. Now, I'm not misspeaking here. The only thing I will tell you and that I can add to that is that the left fielder booted the ball. But Javi Baez scored from first on a Michael Conforto base hit the left field. And, and Conforto was 0 for 5 in this game. I look back at this game and say, this might be the turning point for the New York Mets in their season. I mean, it was fabulous. Everybody in the stands is doing this to Javi Baez. And he's doing it back to the fan. It was almost like whatever stitches that needed to be taken out of that incision that was made by Javi Baez a couple of days prior to that was completely healed. The Met fans forgot about it. Lindor was out there to congratulate him because you remember Lindor politicked to get Javi Baez because they're buddies down in Puerto Rico. I mean, one's from Caguas, the other one's from Santorsi, which they're right next to one another. So this is all good stuff, but I tell you what, I'm keeping an eye on the San Diego Padres. We're going to keep you updated, not only on the Padres, but with all the other races that are going on in baseball. I mean, New York Yankees were unbeatable until they started losing for four games after winning yesterday, but they, they win 13 consecutive games and then they lose four in a row. It, You know, it's not the kind of game that you can sit back and you can go, you know, we're just, we can win every game. 
or what's wrong with this team? I kind of got an idea what's wrong with the San Diego Padres. They need a set lineup. As much as I like Adam Frazier and Jake Marusnik, they need to be subs. Yeah, I'm going with the lineup that all of baseball was talking about at the beginning of 2021. That's what I'm doing the rest of the year. And I'm hitting Tatis, Grisham, Machado, Hosmer, Myers. If you want to flip-flop Myers and Hosmer or Grisham and Tatis, but I'm not, you know, what happened a couple of games ago? I don't know where this lineup came from, but shame on the people that put it together. And I don't know who that is. All I'm saying is I couldn't believe it. There's a left-handed pitcher on the mound, and the first two hitters in our lineup are Grisham and Cronenworth. And Tatis is hitting fourth. What good is Tatis hitting fourth if the first three guys make outs? The mentality is I want to get my best hitter up as many times in the game as I possibly can. And that position is number one. Most of the time, guys in the top four, five, six in the lineup are going to get four at-bats in the game. I want to make sure my guy not only gets four, but possibly gets five and hopefully six. And put them in a position where they don't want to walk them. And if they do, they got a price to pay. Because then you got Grisham behind them, who can do some things. He proved last week he can bunt. He can do some things with the bat. You got Machado, who he can carry a ball club. And then you know what? You can talk about Hosmer all you want to, and he hasn't had a great year. I think his glove has been more suspect than his bat. But you know what? He's a guy that he needs to be in the lineup because he's, he's he knows about winning. He knows about what it's like to be on a championship team. And I'm going back to the game on August 25th up in Los Angeles when the Padres lost in 16 innings, five to three. And boy, was there some serious stuff on social media that next day and that night. A 16-inning game, the Padres lose in 16 innings. Eric Hosmer was 0 for 7 with three strikeouts and no telling how many guys left on base because there were 36 guys left on base The ball club had 36 guys left on base. But there were two times in extra innings that Eric Hosmer did his job. He did what he was supposed to do. And that was to get the runner that started at second base, that extra inning, to third. Eric was the leadoff hitter in the inning. He got the guy to third, grounding out to the right side. In my mind, Eric Hosmer's done his job two times. 
if you do your job two times out of six or so in baseball, you're a pretty good player. And even though he didn't get a hit, he put the team in a position to win. It was just unfortunate that the runs weren't scored. So you're going to get it straight here. You're going to get everything that's going on in the game. Uh, We're going to stay on top of the collective bargaining agreement because it expires December 1st. And we're going to be bringing that to you as it comes along. Naturally, we're going to be bringing all the playoffs uh, in the World Series results and what's happening in those games to you. Uh, Trades, releases, everything to do with baseball is going to be right here on Dirty Kirk's Dugout. And it's brought to you by Hacienda, Casablanca, where producer Joe and I are going to be next I'm going to guess Friday night, but I'll make that announcement to you on social media. But you can probably almost count on Friday night. I'm looking forward to it. The Padres will be in L.A. playing the Dodgers. It's going to be games that we can look forward to. And again, it's the beginning of that. What I feel is going to be a brutal road trip. And if the Padres come back in one piece out of that road trip, I'm going to give them a round of applause. And I think we should also. So until next week, this is Kurt Pavakwa saying goodbye. I want to thank Joe Nelson. I want to thank Alan, my producers, and all of you for joining in. Tell your friends about the show. We're going to let you know where it's going to be dropped, how you can see it, everything that has to do with the show. Until next time, goodbye, everybody. San Diego.